Amen. You know, whenever we experience a final meal of some kind, it's a transition, and usually there's some bittersweet element to it, right? I mean, if it's the last night of a family vacation, maybe people have come from different places and gathered for a week at the beach or something like that, and then you come to that last night and you're sort of reflecting on all the fun you had, but you know tomorrow morning the vacation's over, and so it's a little bit difficult. Or maybe it's that night before you take somebody off to college and you're thinking back of what is ending and what is beginning and it's both sad and happy or the last meal with co-workers before you go on to a new job or a promotion the last night in a beloved house with family before you move on to a new place it can feel really bittersweet and those moments mark a change in something that's going on in a family or in a life today I want us to think about Jesus final meal with his disciples and certainly it was bittersweet in that they were anticipating, especially Jesus, something terrible that was coming and still thinking of all that they had been through together. Now, Jesus was the one who knew this would be their final meal together. Maybe not everyone at the table understood that as they sat down, but this would be the last time that they gathered before the crucifixion for Jesus to share with them. And in this series that I'm calling Final, we're thinking about some last things, the last times that Jesus had with his disciples before the crucifixion, the last week of Jesus' life. And we're thinking about what those things, those events, Jesus' interaction with the people there, what does it say about who Jesus was and what his mission was all about? So we'll be thinking about that today as we look at Jesus' final meal with his disciples. And as I think about that, you know, there's lots of things that Jesus could have done that evening with his disciples. He could have sort of given a synopsis of his teaching, a summary to remind them of everything that they had learned over three years. He did a little bit of that, but that really wasn't his main point. Jesus could have performed some incredible miracle that would have confirmed his identity for these people who needed to know it the most. But that's not what Jesus did. He could have done lots of things that he didn't do, but what Jesus did do is to point forward. He helped them to see that some exciting, important, terrible, and wonderful things were just about to happen, and he taught them how they would be able to remember them once they happened. So I want us to see that tonight. Now, see that this morning as Jesus talks about it that evening. Um, as we come to this meal... We find as Jesus gathering with his disciples, there's a little bit of interval from what we talked about last week. Last week it was a meal at Simon the leper's house, right? And we learned a little bit about worship. In the intervening verses, we have Judas ready to betray Jesus to the authorities. And then we come to Matthew 26, where we're sort of focusing our attention. Verse 17, we'll get there in a minute. And we find Jesus at a table once again. Now, most of us, when we think of the Last Supper, we think of a particular picture, and I think you'll notice it, you'll remember when you see it, right? That's the Da Vinci's Last Supper. When we think about the Last Supper, oftentimes that might be what comes to your mind. And there's a lot there if you spend some time looking at it, and there's some lessons that show up from Scripture. Tim Irvin's going to use this a little bit later in our communion meditation to point that out. But as we look at it, you know, even though that gives us some information, there's some things about it that aren't exactly historically accurate, okay? First of all, most of the time when we gather for a meal, we don't all sit on the same side of the table, right? But that works for a painting, so Da Vinci did it. 
But also, the room was probably set up a little bit different. Rather than one long table, what we probably had is something more like the second picture I have for you that's, that's a Roman way of eating that was called the triclinium, okay? And it was sort of a table in the middle and three sofas or a set of cushions, and everybody usually propped up on their left elbow with their feet away from the table and ate with their right hand. Now, I don't really imagine eating while laying down to be all that comfortable, but it's what they did, okay? So that's probably the way it looked when Jesus gathered with his 12 disciples, with Jesus right there at the sort of the head table, right in the middle as the host for this meal. So get that picture in your head, and then we'll hear what happens in this story. It begins Matthew 26, and we're going to start in verse 17. And it goes this way, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the most important of the feasts for the Jews, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? This is what they would have done every year. Lots of Jews came to Jerusalem for this meal, for this festival. Most important one of the year, you might come once in a lifetime to Jerusalem for this event, or if you had some money, maybe every year. So the city would have been full. And to find a room to house... 12 people plus Jesus, so 13 people would not have been easy. So they want to know, what do we do? Jesus says this, go into the city to a certain man, such and such a man, basically is what it says, and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. So what's going on is Jesus has made a plan. Jesus has it all ready. He knows where it's going to be, and he directs them to it. They prepare the meal, this meal that celebrated the fact that God had brought the people of Israel out hundreds of years before, out of Egypt, out of slavery, made them into a people, okay? And then gave them a land and and made them his people, took care of them, sustained them. It was the central act for the people of Israel, okay? So they celebrated that every year, and that's what they're celebrating on this occasion. And then we find this, right in the middle of the meal. When evening came, Jesus was reclining, just like we said, reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And we go, that seems a strange thing to say in the middle of this meal together. And my guess is, when the disciples heard this, they probably did a double take, like, what is he talking about? And why are we talking about this now? And could this even really happen? One one of the 12, right? And their first response is, well, Jesus, it's, it's not me, right? There's no way that this could be something that I would do. Verse 22, they were very sad and began to say to him, one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. It's as if they're saying, you couldn't be talking about me because I wouldn't do that, at least not on purpose. You're not saying somehow I would inadvertently betray you, right? The way the question is worded, though, it expects a negative answer. So they're expecting Jesus to say, no, it's, it's not you. Verse 23, Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. So Jesus knows who it's going to be. And the disciples are all shocked. They're looking around the room. They know, hey, I haven't done anything except Judas. 
But they're also looking around the room, and I'm wondering if they're thinking, surely none of us would do that to Jesus, right? We've been together three years, and sure, there's been some moments where we've debated who's the most important. We'll get to that again in the communion meditation. There's been some tense moments, but what we've seen, what we've witnessed, what we've heard, how could anybody betray Jesus? So, Lord, it's Master, not, not me. Surely not me. There would have been multiple bowls on the table, and Jesus and Judas must have dipped their hands in the same bowl at the same time, and that marked Judas. Son of man will go, just as written about me, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now think about that for a minute. You've been with Jesus for three years. You're gathered with him at what is really one of the most solemn moments in the whole year of the Jewish calendar. And Jesus says it would be better if you had not even been born. Those are really strong words. Jesus knew what he was about to go through. It involved a gruesome, painful death. It involved carrying the, the sin of all of humanity. But Jesus knew what Judas was about to go through too. And certainly he chose it. But Jesus also knew that after it was over, the guilt that Judas would be filled with and what that would do to him. Judas, knowing what he's already done, looks at Jesus and 11 other men have said, Master, Lord, surely it's not me. Judas says, Teacher. Teacher, it's not me. Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Now it's interesting that all the others give him this exalted title. Lord, Master, the one I follow. And while Rabbi has some honor to it, it is not the same. Being called a teacher was not the same as being called Lord. Judas just cannot bring himself to use that term. Surely it's not me. And Jesus sort of just turns it back, so you say. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us when Judas left that room. We know later on, if you read through the rest of the story, that there's a point at which Judas returns. So he left at some point, but we don't know when. If you read John's account, which is slightly different, and the gospel writers give us all varying views of this meal, John says it's at this point right here, Judas got up, left, went into the dark. Now, John has this great interplay between light and dark in his gospel, and Judas is clearly in the dark at this moment. Okay? So Judas is gone, and then Jesus turns to the 11 remaining, and he's, this happens in verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Now, there were multiple loaves, there were multiple cups that were a part of this ceremonial meal, but what Jesus says is all new here. This is my body. I'm going to give myself for you. Now, did they fully understand what Jesus was talking about in this moment? I don't think they did. Would they reflect back on this later and say, oh, that's what he meant? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's exactly the way it worked. When they saw that Jesus was going to 
really give his own body as a sacrifice for all of humanity, then they would understand what this was all about. But Jesus is giving them now a way to remember what he was about to do later. And then he takes it one step further. Verse 27, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now that word covenant is really important to understand our relationship with God. We look back in the Old Testament, God related to His people. As He called them out of Egypt and made them into a people, He related to them through a covenant, sort of like a treaty, an agreement that says God is the master, these are His people, He's going to make them a people, care for them as a people, sustain them as a people, and they're going to serve only Him. God and only God. And in this moment... Jesus takes this cup, one of the cups that are involved in the ceremony of the unleavened bread, and he said, this cup is the covenant of my blood. Luke tells us Jesus said this is the new covenant. Jesus is doing something new in this moment. And he is saying, you're still going to relate to me in terms of a covenant, but you're going to relate to God through me, through my body, through my blood given on the cross. And Jesus was just about to go there and allow all of evil to empty itself on him to the point that he died for us. And Jesus says here, you're going to remember this moment as the moment that a new covenant has been given. And ultimately what this is all about is relationship. And that's what the message that I want us to take from this is. Jesus invites us into a relationship with God. That's what he was saying at this meal. I'm inviting you into what God is doing. And you're going to witness it, and then you're going to take that and you're going to remember it from that point forward. And one of the ways you're going to remember that is to take the bread and take the cup and say, this is my body and this is my blood. And you're going to take them inside of you and it will be part of who you are to remember what I'm about to do. Now, Jesus is making an offer. Jesus invites us into a relationship with God and when he makes an invitation, that leaves us with a decision, right? We have to decide, am I going to accept or reject that invitation? Now, if we look in Scripture, what we find is that well, there's more than one way to respond to this. We see it over and over again. Some people are going to say, you know, I'm not interested. Or I'm not ready yet. But we've been created with this innate desire to know our Creator. And so some people will say, you know what? I want that more than I want anything. I want to know God. I want to have a relationship with God. And we're told that the way that we respond to that is by faith. We say, I believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, exactly who scripture says he was, that he was the son of God, that he was God himself in human form, that he was the Messiah, the the king, the one that God had been talking about through the prophets for hundreds of years, pointing forward to Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. I believe that so much that I am ready to commit my life to him, to enter into a covenant relationship. And say, I'm going to follow God and only God through Jesus. And then we repent of our sins. Repentance is all about change. Repentance is saying, you know what? 
Over and over, I have believed the lie that sin has told me. That it is better than God. An alternate set of facts that says, this will be better than knowing God. I've bought into that and I recognize the lie now and I don't want to keep living that way. Instead, I want to follow the truth that God has called me into this relationship. And so having regretted so many of the things that I've done that are just really sin, that's what they are, I want to change. I know I won't be perfect, but I want to put some of that behind me. And I want to live in a new way. Repentance is that change to living in a new way. And we're called to confess Jesus as Lord, to say what we believe. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. To say it out loud so that people hear it. To make an expression of what we put into our hearts. And then we're called into baptism. And in baptism, we live out what Jesus was about to do. Jesus was raised, then buried, then raised up to new life. And in baptism, we go up and we're buried and we come out new. It's not magic water. It's not something magic that happens. It's that God is at work and that we come in contact with the grace that is offered only through Jesus. And a new relationship begins. And so we have a choice. Am I going to take God up on this invitation, on this offer? Or am I going to let it go? But as Christians, having made the decision to take God up on that offer of a new relationship, when we gather for worship every Sunday, we take communion. We do exactly what Jesus said in this passage. We take the bread and we take the cup. And part of what I love about that is we're gathered in this room together and we had a group of people in this room already this morning and we took communion as a family, as a body of believers, a community of faith. But as we do that, we participate with these 11 people gathered around Jesus. Because the promise wasn't just for them, it's for us too. And so we gather in brotherhood and fellowship with them 2,000 years later, celebrating exactly the same thing. And we celebrate with the Christians who in the intervening 20 centuries have gathered for worship as well. And we gather with Christians who have and will gather around the globe on this day for worship. And with them, we celebrate what Jesus has done. We celebrate the offer of forgiveness and eternal life. We take the bread, Jesus' body, we take the cup, his blood, and we give thanks and we take it. And we're going to do that in just a few minutes. But one of the things that strikes me about this is that from what Jesus says here, this should be one of the central acts that brings Christians together. And unfortunately, over all these centuries, so many Christians have developed differing understandings of the Lord's Supper and have become so strong in their opinions that some will say, I'm not going to take communion with you. If I'm at your church, I'm not going to take communion with you because you don't look at it, you don't think about it exactly the same way I do. Or they might say, if you're in my church building... Because we don't agree on exactly what all this means, you can't take communion in our building. And I think that is so unfortunate. 
Because what Jesus did and said is, is powerful and meaningful and incredibly simple. This is my body. This is my blood. Take it in remembrance of me. And in this way, we celebrate this great offer of a relationship with God. And so, in this church, if you're a believer in Jesus, whether you're a member of our church or not, or whether you think about communion exactly the same way that we might, we invite you to participate in communion. Because as we share faith, as we share this relationship with God through Jesus, we remember what He's done. And as I said, we're going to do that in just a minute. But it's my hope that as we think through this and think through this relationship that's offered to us in Jesus, if you've been thinking about it, I hope that you'll make the decision, I want that as a part of my life. And if you do, our staff would be willing to talk with you after this service or any time during the week. Our emails and things are in the bulletin or you can look on the website. We would love to talk with you about a decision to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. And we're so thankful that Jesus has invited us into a relationship with you. And God, some in the room haven't made the decision as to how they're going to handle that invitation. And God, I pray you'll be with them and I pray that you'll give them the courage to reach out and talk to us about some of that. And God, I pray that as we gather in a few minutes to remember what Jesus has done, it will be bittersweet because of the price that Jesus paid, but also because of the joy we find in the relationship that he offers us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.